and we're going to be in uh, Luke's Gospel today. Uh, Luke, and we're picking it up in verse uh, 25, where Jesus turns to these crowds that were travelling with him uh, to Jerusalem. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Suppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask them for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, let's ask the Lord to help us to understand uh, this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we have your word the words of Jesus, we have these words in our language in, in, in a way that many in the world don't age unless you come by your spirit and take that word and apply it to our minds and our hearts and our lives. Do all three, we ask, Lord. Help us uh, uh, in the next minutes as we look at this uh, passage and these, in many ways, bewildering and hard words of Jesus that you would give us light. But more than that, that we would go from here loving you more, uh, more in love with the God who is a God of compassion and mercy and kindness. Help us, Father, by your strength, we pray. Amen. Well, a great uh, Christian leader called John Stott, who for many years uh, was the the leader of All All Souls Church just next to the BBC in Langham Place, uh, once said that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say for that is enormous. Let me remind you, verse 26, Jesus says to the crowd, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate your mum and dad, your brothers and sisters? Well, we might get naffed off with them. We might get very annoyed with them at times, but hate, I mean, that is such a strong word, isn't it? Such a strong emotion. And when you think about these words, coming from the mouth of Jesus, they're rather shocking, aren't they? I mean, it it sounds the kind of thing that um, a terrorist leader might might use to recruit that vulnerable young man. You've got to hate your mother and father. Come to the cause. Follow us. Lay down your life. It kind of feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? It's shocking. What's more can be rather embarrassing. How do you explain this 
to your friends at work? How can these words square with a God, with a Jesus who speaks of love and kindness and forgiveness and peace? And indeed, not only that, they're kind of contradictory, aren't they? They don't square up with what he said about loving and honouring your parents. They don't square up with the fifth command that God gave about honouring our mother and father all the days of our life. They're shocking, they're contradictory, they're embarrassing. So, so what's going on here? Does Jesus really mean what he's saying here? Why on earth did he say such a thing? Well, as John Stott pointed out, when we come to the Bible, we must put it in its context. We do that with any piece of writing, don't we? We put it in its context. It's always important to do that. Otherwise, you make it say something that it's not saying. You make it say whatever you want it to say. So let's remind ourselves of the situation in which Jesus spoke these words to these crowds that were following him. Now, in the journey, as the journey begins in, in Luke 13, where Jesus sets himself to go to Jerusalem. The journey is going to end in, in chapter 23, as Luke describes it, in Jesus' death and crucifixion. It's a long journey, but it's a journey to death. It's a journey to crucifixion. Luke's again spoken to his disciples how about how this journey is going to end. They were so bewildered that they couldn't grasp it. They just couldn't take it in. But he kept saying to them, this is how the journey is going to end. And more so, if you're going to follow me, you've got to make that journey. You've got to walk the Calvary Road yourself if you're going to be my disciple. So there's an echo here of what he's been repeatedly saying and continues to say to these disciples as he makes this journey at the same time he's telling them that's not the end of the story for through this journey and by this journey that's going to end in his death it's also going to end in his resurrection it's going to end in him setting up a new kingdom and that kingdom will be inaugurated with a banquet and he's spoken earlier on in Luke 14 about that great banquet in verses 15 to 24 just before uh, this and you can see it there it's headed up the parable of the great banquet that banquet that kingdom that he's setting up is actually open to anybody it's open to all everybody anyone may come what's more it's completely free it's provided totally free of charge at no cost whatsoever to the guests but as Jesus has been pointing out not everybody's going to take up that offer, that invitation. There are those who are too proud to come. There are those who will make their excuses, and we read about it in the passage that before we've just read now, where they're saying, oh, I've, I've just got married, I can't come, I'm too busy. Oh, I've just bought a field, I've, I've got to go and see to it. And they make these excuses as to why they can't come to this banquet. They're too proud, they're too distracted. More than that, they've ultimately absolutely no wish to be part of this kingdom to be a follower of Jesus so whereas it's open to everybody tragically not everybody wants to come not everybody wants to come to the banquet not everybody wants to be part of this kingdom <coughs> yet there's a second group that he's talking to they're described in verse 21 if you have a look at that please he describes them as the poor the crippled the blind and the lame these are people who are in desperate condition. They're in no doubt about their need 
And therefore, their delight to come into his kingdom, into his banquet. They're the ones who are really ready to accept the invitation. Now, that's the context in which Jesus, turning to these crowds that are following him, makes this, what to our ears, is a shocking statement. Whoever does not hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, cannot be my disciple. You see, he knows that the crowds following him are fickle. Most of them, when gets tough, the further on we go in Luke's Gospel, the more that comes the case. Those, like make their excuses, who are too proud to come. But a second group are those who recognise their neediness, who are willing to come because of the kindness that he extends to them. And the amazing thing is, those two crowds are represented here this afternoon. You see, the first group, many of them were very intrigued. The crowd were intrigued by Jesus. They, they loved to hear his teaching. They loved to see his miracles. They, they were fascinated by this man. Who wouldn't be? And they came along in their droves. But when he talked to them about the cost of following him, when he talked to them about the life that he was going to demand of them, that following him would cost, they evaporated. Those in the first group do. They're intrigued, but when faced with the reality of what Christ is saying, they evaporate like the morning mist. Some of us will find ourselves in that group. There's a second group of those who will see their need, who recognise their need of Jesus, of a saviour, to be right with God. Who, metaphorically speaking, are blind to the truth without him opening their eyes. Who are unable to rescue themselves they're lame but seeing his power seeing what work he has done at the cross readily come to him so Jesus pulls no punches and he uses his very strong imagery and he says look the call to follow me is not a call just to tag along it's not a call to drift in and drift out as the fancy takes you no it's a call to throw yourself in with me completely, completely. It's a call to wholehearted commitment to him and his cause. And the interesting thing is, I don't know if you saw it as we read it through, is he puts his finger on three things that prevent people from following him. They prevented them 2,000 years ago when Jesus was on earth, and they prevent us today. Those three things, verse 26... Our family, verse 27, self, and verse 33, materialism. And did you notice three times that phrase occurs in this passage where Jesus, having put his finger on those three idols, says, if they're going to be the priority of your life, you cannot be my disciple. He couldn't be clearer, could he? Saying it once would reinforce it, but three times, wow. So whoever we are today, wherever we are today in terms of a relationship with Jesus, let's look more closely at these three things. The things that keep us from following him. Look again at verse 26, please. If anyone comes to me and does not hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, they cannot be my disciples. Now, we need to understand that the Bible often uh, uses, a, and, and Jesus does, and, and the Bible writers often use 
the language of contrast to, to underscore a preference, the love-hate language to express a preference. Remember, he's talking about discipleship. He's talking about primary loyalty. Who's number one in our life? And all he's doing, as this Jewish crowd would have understood, in with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. In one sense, in a very poetic form, he's reminding them of that first command. For you see, Jesus is not anti-family. After all, he invented it. He's not advocating hatred. This is the man who calls his followers to forgive their enemies and to love them and to do good to those who harm them. This is the one, indeed, who who gave us the fifth commandment to honour father and mother. No, the point he's simply making is this. He must take priority over everything and everyone else in our life if we are going to follow him. He must come first. Now these words, for most of us brought up in a Western culture and a Western society, these words of Jesus about hatred of family, they just jar on our ears. They're just so peculiar, so odd. But actually they wouldn't have been strange at all to that crowd that he was addressing. They would have understood exactly what he meant by that because they would have understood that to follow this carpenter from Nazareth was going to mean that you were going to have to be prepared to step out of your religious culture. Remember all the way through the Gospels, Jesus, the enemies he has inside are mainly the religious people who are setting barriers in the ways of people coming to God. But that pervaded the whole culture, the whole lifestyle, in the ways that it does in many parts of the world today. If you lived in the Muslim world or Hindu world, Buddhist world, the whole culture is pervaded through with this ownership, this priority to the religion. These, these first hearers of that would have understood quite clearly that if I'm going to follow this, na- this carpenter from Nazareth, then, as he often said, quite likely, I'm going to be put out of the synagogue. I'm going to be pushed out of my culture. I'm going to be disowned by my family. They seem strange words to us, but that's only because of the culture we live in. If we lived in some of those parts of the world, like the Muslim world or Hindu world, where today to become a disciple of Jesus very often means this exact choice. To follow Christ, you see, may well be at the cost of family relationships. Even here in, in the UK, I knew a man, he's ended up as a pastor of a church down in Surrey. But he, he was from a Jewish background. And on the eve of his baptism, his father, tomorrow, that's the end of it. You are no longer my son. There he was, stark choice. Who was going to get the priority? Christ or his family allegiance? It's the very thing that Jesus is talking about. I suspect that our problem is much more at the other end, where family has become so big to us, even in our individualised West and world, that an allegiance to family is still a big priority, even if we're from quite a secular background. I know somebody in this church, even over this weekend, who's had a lot of problems. Why do you give so much time to the church? 
What about us? Really angry about that. Determinedly angry. You see, it's a very real live issue. If you trust in Christ, there may well be a cost to pay. If you're from a religious background and a religious ethnic group, there more than certainly will be a cost to pay. But even from our Western secular background, there is a cost. For the end of our time together today, we're going to sing uh, a hymn written by a guy called Henry Light, who was uh, a minister down in Brixham in Devon. And he heard the story of this uh, young woman who was an heiress and had become a Christian as a young woman. And her father, in similar fashion, had said to her, if you follow Christ, that's the end of your inheritance. I will cut you off from the family. I will cut you off your inheritance. She wrote the hymn, or he wrote the hymn about that decision that she made. Jesus, I my cross have taken. This isn't an out there, back then kind of issue, friends. It's right in our face today. Because family is such a big thing. It's a great thing. But it doesn't come before God. It can't do. Then Jesus goes on to a second issue. The issue of self. He turns from the family to the individual. Now he describes discipleship in verse 27 in terms of self-denial or carrying our cross. Again, a strange imagery for us, but again to them in their first century world, a very vivid and real imagery. For if you saw a man carrying his cross, one thing you knew for certain about that guy, he was as good as dead. He was as good as dead. And Jesus takes that picture as good as dead as to what it means to follow him. If you're going to follow me, he said, he said it repeatedly, his disciples, bless them, they just couldn't get their head around it, could they? Not surprisingly, really. He said, it's going to be at the cost, ultimately, of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Now, as you well know, we, we live in a culture that's saturated with self. Daily, we're bombarded with messages and adverts uh, that's all about us. It's all about me. I am the centre of the world. And if we don't know that about ourselves, our capacity for self-love, then we really don't know ourselves too much, do we? You see, my instinctive reaction, I suspect it's yours, if you're absolutely truthful, to any situation is invariably this. How is this going to affect me? Ever, ever get that? Or is it just me that gets that? How is this going to affect me? What do people think of me? How can I manipulate this situation to meet my needs? It doesn't seem to be going in the right direction. How can I just tweak it a bit? Capacity for self. We don't really know ourselves. The fact is, I am the most important person in my life. And that's how you and I instinctively think, isn't it? It's the same for every one of us by nature. Now, I'm of that generation where pop music came in the 60s, or 50s actually. There was a song at that time, and it went, uh, I love you and don't you forget it, I love you and don't you forget it, I love you and don't you forget it. You don't have to answer that one. But one wag, one friend of mine twisted that and uh, he reformed it this way 
which I think is that bang on. I love me and don't you forget it. I love me and don't you forget it. I love me and don't you forget it, baby. Where's Jana? Where is she? There you are. You've got to remember that about Kenan. This is his his default position. (laughs) And the default position of every single one of us. We love ourselves. And into our life steps Jesus with a call to follow him, to hand over our lives to him, to put ourselves totally under his authority, his leadership, his priorities, his agenda, his example. Whoever wants to be my disciple, he says, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. It's not an option, it's an imperative, it's a must. This is basic, first level, discipleship. It's a call to inconvenience yourself for Christ because you can't deny yourself without inconveniencing yourself, can you? Phil's already been praying about that. We've confessed that actually during this week I, I instinctively thought three or four situations when he invited us to think of those places where we put ourselves before others, generally people that are nearest and dearest to us. It's so ingrained in us. It's so anti our instinct to be other person-centred. But this is the call of Christ, to follow him. And of course, that was the life that he lived. That was the example that he gave. Indeed, remember in Mark's Gospel, I did not come to be served, though he is worthy of all service, I've come to serve. It's not optional. Are we up for that? Well, count the cost, says Jesus. This is what it means to follow me. This is the Calvary road. And it's a lifetime's journey. It's the route that he's travelling, and it's the route that he calls all his disciples to travel after him. Family, self. But then there's a third thing that he puts his finger on, isn't there? In verse 33, with that warning about the material things of life. Now again, let's understand this. God is not anti-material. He's the inventor of material things. He's made us material beings. We need the stuff of life to live. They're good gifts from our creator. We need the basic materials of life. But they're not the point of life. They're the gifts. But how strange if we worship the gift and not the giver. They're good gifts from a loving God. But ultimately, he wants to love himself. And that's the point Jesus has been making in verse 33. If you do not give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. It couldn't be more embracing, could it? All embracing, in fact. And you remember, he tells two parables as a prelude to that. Strange parables. One about a building project, about a man sitting down building his tower. Uh, if you come from a certain part of the country around here, up in the north especially, they, they have what they called follies. You ever come across a folly? Nobody ever come across a folly. It's where those towers get built and somebody's built this tower. It's like in the middle of nowhere for no apparent reason at all and they haven't been able to finish it. It's kind of, they've got a lot of money. They don't know what to do with it. They build the tower. It's half finished, didn't have enough money to complete it and so on. And Jesus tells this story about sitting down and counting the cost. And then he tells another story about warfare, about A king with 20,000 coming against a king with 10,000. What are those two about? 
They're rather strange when you think about it. But in the context again, I think this is what he's saying. Sit down and work out whether you really can afford to follow me. Are you really ready to pay the price? That's the parable of the tower. But the second one is kind of the flip of it. He's saying, sit down and work out whether you can afford not to follow me. Because the king is coming against you with a mighty army. And the day of reckoning is coming. So you better sit down and work it out. Do your sums. Can you afford to refuse my demand? Do you see, if you put the two together, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Do you see the point he's making? We're free to choose whether to follow him or not. Don't rush into it. Examine it. Christianity invites examination. Faith is not something we conjure up. Faith is, indeed, as John Stott put it, trust. It's simply trust, taking God at his words. Faith is not, as one woman once said to me, I wish I had your faith, as if it was like the measles, something you caught. That's how we often think of faith. No, faith in the Bible is always, here's the evidence, can you trust the evidence? And if you're here this afternoon and you're just new to Christian things and so on, it's brilliant to have you here. And Jesus says, look at the evidence. It invites examination of the evidence. It loves people to look at the evidence. Because it's dealing in truth. And Jesus says, sit down, look at the evidence, count the cost. Count the cost. Is he who he says he is? Is he the king with a more powerful army? Is he the king of kings who is ultimately coming against us, who we can't afford to ignore? So Jesus puts his finger on three things, family, self, and materialism. Remarkable. of London, one of the, the great cities of the world, with all our technological advances, and the same issues are there. This is the timelessness of God's word, you see. But remember this. If we won't follow Jesus, then what's left to us? What's left to us is family, self, and materialism. That's ultimately what we're left to live for. And my dear friends, if we choose to live for those things, they will mock us. Our our idols always mock us at the end of the day. They will let us down. They will fail us. They can't deliver the goods because we're not made just for stuff or to find our fulfillment in other people and certainly not in ourself. That's why there are such high suicide rates. No, no, no. We are made for the one who made us, who created us, who knit us together in our mother's womb, who has showered his love and compassion and mercy and faithfulness upon us day after day after day unremittingly and has called us to himself and has demonstrated his love in the greatest way possible in what seems a very odd way but by laying down his life on the cross to make it possible for people like you and I to be put right with God to come back into a relationship with him Do your sums, says Jesus. Do your sums. But this week, when I've been thinking about this passage, I also thought this. Why? 
why would I follow him? If it's going to mean he comes first, even before family, myself, and material things, why would I do that? Why on earth would I pay such a price? Well, the answer is found either side of the passage that we've looked at. For earlier on in in chapter 13 and 14, Jesus has been showing himself to be the king, to be the God, the creator who made us all, to be the number one, to be our creator. But remarkably, in Luke 15, he shows us he is the king who's come to rescue us. In fact, to, to look for us, to search for us, because we're lost. So he tells the parables about the lost coin and, and the lost sheep and the lost son. You see, here's the king. What's he come to do? He's come to search for us, to seek us out. And it's in that context that Jesus says that I lay down my life for you. I don't call you to do what I do. We could never pay for another person's sin. But I call you to follow the Calvary road. Gospel travels. That's the way the kingdom grows. So why would I follow him? Simply for that very reason. Because he's number one. Because he is the king. But he is the king of love. A king of remarkable love. I will never find anyone in the world like him. That's why. Because he is the God who's made us. He is the God who's setting up a kingdom. I would be foolish not to want to be part of that kingdom if I understand that I can come into it, that I can come to his banquet. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I see through the shallowness of materialism and the emptiness of following self and the inability of family to deliver that which I most need? Why wouldn't I see the beauty of Christ? It's there on display for all of us. You know, some of these disciples who were there with the crowd, as the crowd evaporated, later on in Luke's Gospel, as he sees them going away, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Are you going as well? Are you going as well? Do you remember what he says? They said to him, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life they recognised there was no one else to go no other person to go to no other place to go and they followed him what about you what about me are you ready to follow him on Friday did something I've never done before in all my 70 years because it is my 70th year my family had bought me a helicopter ride. So on Friday afternoon, Val and I go to Red Hill Aerodrome for a flight over London. And at uh, 5.45 on Friday afternoon, evening, we clamber aboard this helicopter. At the point that the door closes, I realise I've done something. What have I done at that point? I've committed my life to this pilot, whose name is Tim. Sure, he's a nice guy, but I've committed my life to him. As that door closes and the lock goes there, and we start to hover up. What have you done, Archer? (laughs) 
totally in his hands. Well, Jesus calls us to put our life totally in his hands. If we're not yet a Christian, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, self, family, materialism, will never deliver it. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will make it possible for you to be right with God. I will open up the doors of heaven to you. And to those of us who have done that, it's just like getting into the helicopter. This week, there'll be, right now, things in our life where God is saying to us, where Jesus is saying to us, follow me. And we're hesitant because there's a cost to it. We don't know where it's going to lead. It feels really scary, this commitment to Christ. (coughs) It's like getting in the helicopter. But here's the difference. Unlike Tim, noble guy though he is, I'm sure, the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. To be in his hands, you go on the Christian life, the more you will discover that. So trust him. Follow me, says Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you so loved us, that you sent your Son to this earth, who spoke these words we have recorded in the Gospels, sometimes of which were so shocking uh, and bewildering for us, and yet understood in their context are totally coherent, totally understandable, totally worthy of heeding. And Lord, we know that your Son, the Lord Jesus, stands before every single one of us as our Creator and says to us, follow me. And if we're here this afternoon and we haven't yet come to that place of following him, I do pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that will enable us to take the next step along the road of looking at the evidence of talking about these things, of coming with an open mind, of thinking about the meaning of life, of thinking especially of the person of the Lord Jesus, that we might come to a point where we say, yes, Lord, I will follow. And if we've already followed, we've started upon that journey, maybe just a week ago, months ago, a few years ago, or many years ago, Lord, we know that there'll come those times in our life virtually every week where your claims upon us are costly and even painful and yet they're totally worth it because it's on the back of that that you travel in our life and through our lives into the lives of others and extend this kingdom and call others into your banquet. Help us to embrace your way, we pray. Help us to trust ourselves to you as our Lord and our Saviour. Amen.